Welcome to Read, Write, Repeat, a podcast where a writer and a bookseller talk bookselling, publishing, writing, reading, and all manner of bookish topics. I'm Kelsey, an author working toward publishing my debut novel. Unfortunately, Keisha got called into booksell last minute and can't be here. But in her stead, the wonderful author C.E. Clayton is joining me today. C.E. writes fantasy and fiction featuring strong yet damaged women. Welcome. Hello. You can call me Chelsea, by the way, if that's awesome. easier. <laughs> I, will, I will happily call you Chelsea. I love the name Chelsea. Thank you. I know. I can't imagine why you would. <laughs> I often get called Chelsea, so. <laughs> and the only reason why I use uh, the pen name is that my mom got real creative with the spelling of Chelsea. So when I tell people my name, anytime you think of like, oh, I can Google that and find it, you will not. It will not happen. Um, <laughs> so it's just, it's easier for everyone to just do the, the initials of my first and my middle name. Um, it's really cute. At Starbucks, they always like, oh, how do you spell your name? Like, just however you want, it's fine. <laughs> just spell it. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. If you say it the same, um, and that's where the problem comes in. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so one of the things I wanted to talk about, um, you had all these fun little tidbits about yourself, and the one that I was instantly drawn to was that you wrote your master's um, thesis on if playing World of Warcraft with your romantic partner has a positive or negative impact on the relationship. So what brainchild <laughs> was this? Tell me more. Yes, absolutely. So um, in college, me and my boyfriend, who is now my husband, uh, did a, we had a long distance relationship. He was in Philadelphia. I stayed in Los Angeles. And one of the things that we did together to kind of help bridge that distance, that literal distance between us, was we played games. Um, and there was there's always this kind of stereotype that, oh, video games are bad for you. They're going to keep you inside. They're going to ruin communication. I mean, it's the same argument that's been used with every popular media that's ever been used. Oh, when movies got sound, when um, TV came along, it's like, oh, no, this new thing is going to ruin how we interact with people. Dating is never going to be the same now that we have, you know, things like Tinder. Um, and so all before that, I was fascinated with how people could believe that if you played cooperatively, not something like the Wii where you're actively competing against each other, like that will cause you to get a divorce. I'm convinced <laughs> that the Wii is the leading cause of divorce in today's <laughs> modern relationship. But if you're actually playing together, working together, um, that that shouldn't have or at least I believed it shouldn't have the, the impact that it would. Um, and me and my husband, we, we didn't play World of Warcraft together. We played things like Halo, um, Gears of War, but unfortunately I couldn't get enough participation in terms of questionnaires and research that had been done to make a good foundation for a, a master's thesis. World of Warcraft had that, so I used that as the basis. Um, and what I found with the, these questionnaires that I sent out to like 500 people, got 300 really good responses, which is enough to make that baseline, um, at least in academia. And I found that for most people, again, if you're playing purely cooperatively, you're working together, it was just that shared activity. It was like watching TV with your significant other. It didn't have a positive or a negative impact. It was just a thing you did together. And it helps with long distance more than anything, but even if you weren't doing long distance, a lot of times it was just 
you could substitute it with like, hey, what do you want to watch with dinner tonight? And it would be the same sort of thing. It was just a shared activity. So, and because my husband is a big nerd, he works in the gaming industry and he kind of, and it was kind of, if I didn't play games, I was never going to stick around very long in the relationship. Um, it felt like a natural fit and had a very sort of personal aspect to it where it's like, oh no, is this relationship doomed from the start? Um, and it wasn't. So yay. <laughs> that's awesome. I absolutely love that. And I love what you said there about the new thing always being the thing that's going to destroy society. Oh, it's always happening. I mean, it's the yeah. same thing with the book industry. Kindle. Kindle was right. going to destroy books. And it's like, I'm pretty sure there's this wonderful quote, uh, quote by Stephen Fry, where he says that books are, no, it's, uh, stairs are no more afraid of escalators than books are of Kindle. <laughs> I love that. I love, isn't it great? And it's yes. like, it's the same, I feel it's the same way with a lot of modern technology. It's just because now people are meeting um, through dating apps or you know, there's more virtual entertainment out there. It doesn't mean that we can't form meaningful relationships. It just means that those meaningful relationships have added either complications based on how you use the technology or can now be more meaningful for someone who maybe can't leave their house because of a medical condition. Um, so it's, it's all about how you use it. Absolutely. And I think back, uh, back to ancient technology, you know, when books are first coming out and from, you know, before, before that time, people are passing down these stories through memory. And so there's this fear that now people won't remember things and there was resistance toward the written word as well. So it's not a new, no, no, not a new thing. It's, and we survived that. <laughs> just barely. <laughs> Although I do wonder, and it's like, I have the worst sense of direction. I don't know how I got around without, uh, like, Google Maps on my phone before this. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm a little dyslexic when it comes to right and left. If I don't actually move my hands in the direction, I'm, I'm going, oh, thank God, you're my people. <laughs> I'm always afraid that, like, oh, go uh, right, no, left. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm, the, I'm the worst navigator. I'm, thank God for Google. Yes. Yes, same here. Yeah, there, there are some things that I think we sacrifice, but also when we have that technology at our fingertips, there's no reason not to use it, I guess. Right. I mean, I'm pretty sure, though, that because research is so easy, and you, I'm sure you understand this as a fellow writer, I'm, I'm fairly positive I'm on at least nine different watch lists because of my Google search history. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I just want a tab or uh, a little box that I can click. It's like, it's for research. I swear to God, please. Author. <laughs> author at work. I really don't need to know what the best artery to sever for a quick death is for personal reasons. Right. But <laughs> Yes, I was um, Googling for my thesis, for an essay in my thesis, I was Googling, oh, the easiest ways to murder somebody with like natural around the house things. Easy to find. Things. Wonderful. What was the answer? I'm intrigued. I mean, it was, I mean, a dozen different things. You can <laughs> slowly overdose person on Tylenol every day. Uh, you know, a little oh. gas leak here. <laughs> I think we're going to have to put like a warning on this video. Please don't try at home. Yes. I know. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, so tell me. Okay. Yes. No, I was just gonna say right on the heels of me trying to figure out what was the best artery to sever so someone wouldn't know that they were gonna bleed out really fast. I followed that up with medieval birth control. Um, 
So I don't know what Google thinks I'm doing. <laughs> they probably give you to the, the brand new intelligence officers as a prank. You know, they're like, okay, this person, it's all codes. It's all very in-depth. I mean, this is a high-risk person. Watch them and tell us what their plan is. <laughs> it's, they're like, then they're talking about elves and names. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about what you write. You are kind of a, a jack of all trades, it seems like, when you come to what you like to write. So I, tr I definitely that. try. Um, a lot of, you look at these really big authors out there, they always seem to just write one genre, J.K. Rowling, uh, Pierce Brown, um, even like Leah Bardugo, all of them seem to only write fantasy. And if they write anything outside of their hit series, and you see this most with like J.K. Rowling, she tried to write something that was not Harry Potter. It did not go well. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate because she is, you know, she's just got pigeonholed and she's got so many more stories to tell, I'm sure. And I am of the camp of Potter-less, and I'm sorry ahead of time. It was just one of those things where it's like, I'm, I'm ready for Harry Potter to kind of end. Um, but it's unfortunate where if you like other stories, you like reading other stories, which I do. I don't just read fantasy. I don't just read young adult fiction. I read horror, I read thrillers, I read mysteries, I read contemporaries, um, fantasy certainly. But if I don't read just one genre, why should I only write one genre? Um, so I use contemporary a lot as my palate cleanser <laughs> in between writing fantasy because it's not as hefty in terms of world building, but it's so in depth with character building that it's this nice little reset of switching my brain from really focusing on magic systems or rules of a different, like literally different worlds um, and crazy names to something that's today, here and now, and I don't have to focus on the world building because it's, it's today. Um, and I can focus more on those complex relationships that maybe don't get enough attention that are still very grounded, have very damaged characters because our society maybe isn't so, well, it's not maybe, it's not <laughs> great towards mental health and people suffering from different uh, mental afflictions that you can't see, it's like depression. Um, oh, just smile, like that doesn't help, that helps no one. Um, so writing those stories where I can delve deeper into characters in one genre and then build giant worlds in another kind of keeps everything fresh without burning out on just fantasy and feeling like, oh, I've already made magic. I've already done feral elves. I've already done medieval. I've already done science fiction. There's nothing left to tell. Whereas that little reset's like, no, I could take this trope. I could spin it. I can flip it on its head. I wonder what would happen to a character who has, um, social anxiety like they're afraid to leave their house but they're also the chosen one like what what would that be like um so i use the contemporary to kind of just reset even though writing those characters is a lot it's a lot more emotionally draining than it is in my fantasies but it's i just don't want to be one of those writers who is only allowed publicly to write one thing even if deep in my soul, it's like, oh, but I really want to write a story about two siblings that don't understand each other because I have a hard relationship with a lot of my, 
blah, blah, with one brother. We just don't connect. And I wanted to share that, but it can't do that if I'm only allowed to write giant fantasy worlds because a story like that is a much tighter focus um, than just magic systems and, and all of that kind of elaborate behind the scenes world building that fantasy needs to take. Absolutely. And I, I think that this is a message that more writers need to hear early on. I know, it, and it's, I think there's, there's an idea out there or a rule with quotation marks around it. That you can only do one thing. Cause I remember writing my first novel and getting done with it and freaking out because I didn't want to write it. It was a thriller and I didn't want to write another thriller. It was really the only thing I had in me. And I figured that that was it. Yeah. <laughs> my writing career that there was nothing I was going to be able to do. Right. Especially after digging around and there's so much out there that says you have to write one thing and, you know, often fit fan bases won't follow you, which is definitely not true. And right. so I'm glad that there are authors out there like you who are willing to not only do that, but also share that that is not true. And I think a lot of what it comes down to is like when you're, you know, when they always talk about the business of bu building an author brand, a lot of times what helps if you don't want to write just one genre all day, every day, is to have a central theme to build your brand off of. Like for me, it's these, you know, really strong yet damaged women that are constantly striving to be the person that they can be proud of come the end of the book. So it's always this you know, very character focused. And even if I have a fantasy that's um, pure medieval fantasy, like my Monster Selkirk series, or if it's more science fiction, or even contemporary, that central theme is still damaged, strong women. And if that means that I have to use uh, C.E. Clayton as my young adult, because there's always, that's the tricky part, is if you go from young adult to adult fiction, because then you don't necessarily want to offend your young adult readers when they pick up your adult books and suddenly they're swearing and sex and gore. Right. Um, so that I can understand, but then you just, split it out between C.E. Clayton or Chelsea Clayton. Um, and you can kind of put just that little bit of a break in between or that separation so that your young adults or middle grade or your younger audience doesn't accidentally pick up your older books and suddenly is like, oh my God, where did this sex come from? <laughs> yes. No, that makes a, t a lot of sense. Do you have, so do you write both across uh, YA and adult? I, my work in progress is definitely do. So my series that's out right now is all young adult. There's um, all the cursing in it is kind of like the whole, oh, bloody this. And like, <laughs> you know, it's very, it's, it's not going to, you know, have to be bleeped out on popular television. Fingers crossed. Netflix, pick me up. Um, <laughs> but with the, the, the series that I'm writing right now, it is much more an adult cyberpunk fantasies or science fantasy rather um, genre. And there's a lot of cursing and it's very colorful. Like in my real life, I swear a ton. It feels natural to me. Um, <laughs> I am a bad- You are our people. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Um, and it just, people talk like that, especially if they're supposed to be in this sort of underground, situation, you know, you're dealing with soldiers, you're dealing with mobsters, they don't just say, oh, shoot. <laughs> I 
sense. Right. So there's a lot of swearing and I do like to get descriptive and that includes both Mainly it includes gore, although sometimes it goes into the sexy bits, but that I have to be drinking wine for. Um, (laughs) I love it. I I get so embarrassed, but not when I'm writing about violent scenes. I'm not sure what that says about me as a person, but um, so it is very much adult. Even if it was just language-based, it would be uh, very uncomfortable to listen to in an audiobook version because some of the characters swear at least three times in a sentence. Um, so for that, I may go, I may drop part of the pen name and go back to my, um, my real name and just hope that people can spell it when they search for me, (laughs) just because it is such an age jump from my current series, um, to what this is going to be. Yeah, I could see that. Oh gosh, who was I? I love, um listening to Molly Harper audiobooks read mm-hmm. by, I'm trying to remember the name of the, I, the narrator for him is absolutely amazing. She's sarcastic and, and <laughs> funny. And I saw that Molly Harper is now doing a YA series. And I imagine it's a little bit easier for your fan base to go from adult to YA without that need to be real concerned. Yeah, especially since with a long series, like the Monster Selkirk is six books. So if you start with, and same thing with Harry Potter, it's the same sort of example. You start when you're younger and by the time you get to the end, you've aged six years maybe. If you're reading a book a year, I hope you don't. But um, either way, with the Harry Potter, I forget how long. um, Yeah. But there's that gap. So your readers are aging up and they can age up with your characters. It would be a little strange if you had, um, it's like almost similar to what the Simpsons deal with. It's like the characters are never aging. Yeah. They've been here for 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's easy to kind of age them up with your readers as long as it doesn't cross a line of how gratuitous things get. Um, but if they read book one and then they continue on in the series, I feel like there's a little bit more forgiveness if things get a little bit more mature towards the end of a series, because that feels natural. Definitely. But, but if you're, I think the big, like almost the biggest controversial one in terms of just popularity, so I know most people have probably heard of it, is the, uh, uh, a, the Sarah J. Mass books with a, a core of throne, I, thrones and roses. I don't know why that's such a hard word for me to say. <laughs> um, it's billed as YA because her Throne of Glass series is YA. That series is not a, a young adult series. There's yeah. it, there's a lot of sex in it, but because that's, you know, again, with the pigeonholing of, oh, she's a YA author. All of her fans are young adult. We have to make sure that they continue on. And yet now there's this really mature content in the book. Um, it gets a little a little bit of a gray area in terms of the the age and the genre and what you label a book as or search for it under with all of those uh, search terms at Amazon and Google and what have you places on books and where to find them. Definitely. And it seems like you'd want your readers to pick up, you don't want somebody to pick up the book under misconceptions because they're not going to like it anyway. No, no. So the pigeonholing thing just makes no sense. (laughs) 
it doesn't, but I get it from a brand perspective too. It's like, oh, queen of fantasy or, you know, the king of science fiction. It's like, it's nice to know if your fans know exactly what they're always going to be getting from you. You know, James Patterson's one of those guys yes. who's a literal brand name. Um, but I, creatively speaking, I don't want to burn out on just one genre because sometimes yeah. it's it's you get inspired lightning strikes this is the kind of book i want to write and then that lightning may not strike again in that same genre for five six years and what are you supposed to do in that time not right yeah absolutely i totally agree so what is it like crafting characters that are inhabiting these drastically different genres i always start with world building first, because it's almost impossible, impossible for me to figure out how these characters would function in their world if I don't know what their world is. Um, so I spend a lot of time, I have journals, lots and lots of journals filled with my very terrible handwriting of what the world is, how the magic functions, is there magic? And once I know what those rules are, I go to, I have these wonderful uh, negative and positive and the emotional uh, thesauruses. And I go into them and figure out like, if a character is a martyr and they're always kind of, woe is me, um, how would that work in a world where they can cast magic? You know, it's really hard to be a martyr if it's like, poof, I've just made myself a dragon to fly on. Feel bad for me. Uh, <laughs> doesn't really work. Um, so you take, I go through these traits and find like, that would be an interesting one or a complicated one or that would really clash. Because you like that tension, right? When you're writing these stories, because that's what makes the book interesting. Read like, oh, how are they going to get out of this one? Um, and I can find a lot of those different traits, both positive and negative, and how someone would behave if they had that. And sometimes a positive trait where you think like, oh, they're generous. Well, that could be a negative thing if they're generous to the point of now they live in a cardboard box because they've given everything away. Um, so that's how I go about crafting my characters. I have to know what the world is first, and then I can go and figure out what character traits, not even what their personality is necessarily, because I don't know if they're funny yet, I don't know if they're romantic, but I do know that this person is racist. Um, and that's going to go over really poorly if they're racist against the magical creatures that happen to be the ones in charge of their world. Um, so a lot of times that little nugget can apply to both contemporary and uh, fantasy worlds. But it's how that world is set up and how that trait would then complicate their lives once it is placed into those very strict rules that I've, that I've already figured out because my journals help me keep it organized in my mind, even over six books of writing. Um, and that even includes as, uh, goes as far as fashion. I have, I go through and figure out what the characters are wearing. Pinterest is my friend when it comes to clothes. Um, so they, I know what these characters are wearing. I have their, their personalities. I have their backstory. And all of that stuff may not be what the reader sees, but I know that my, my character was bullied as a child. 
And therefore, each time he sees a small kid who's being picked on, he's going to go into action. Um, so just kind of crafting all of this elaborate, intense backstory that no one sees ahead of time. So that once I do give my characters names and figure out what their voice sounds like, they don't seem out of place with their world, even if some of the traits like could fit from contemporary to fantasy. I absolutely love that. There's some great tips in there. What about for like, uh, um, okay, so with your, um, your novel series, Selkirk, right? Did I say yeah. that right? Yes. Um, with that, you have feral elves in that one, correct? Yes. Okay, so <laughs> the question here is how to build relatable characters within a world that is very otherworldly. Like, how are you, what are some of your tips and tricks? What are some of the things you think about when you're doing that? I've always been a fan of reluctant heroes. And so a lot of times it's, you have these monsters and they could be an actual monster where it's an, an evil villain or it could be an obstacle like my feral elves. They're not smart enough. They're kind of like zombies from like The Walking Dead. The zombies in Walking Dead are not the villain. They're an obstacle that brings out the worst in other people. Um, so a lot of times that's what I'm using. You've got these obstacles and these reluctant heroes who don't want to save the world. I mean, in my life, and I'm sure in most people's lives, responsibility is scary. Being an adult is scary because now you have to take care of other people, other things. Um, and that's what a reluctant hero is to me. And so if I don't want to shoulder extra responsibility, extra burden, because I'm scared of failure, I'm scared of the pressure of performing well, maybe all I want to do is hide, to run away, um, wanting to be someone else because you look on Instagram or Facebook and everyone's lives look perfect. They all look put together. They look like the kind of person who could save the world if they were just given a chance. Um, Maybe I just want to trade with someone who looks like they have an easy path or they were born with that, you know, that silver spoon, someone who looks like they have it all put together. That's a relatable feeling that I think most people have at some point in their life. Totally. And to me, those are all my reluctant heroes. They are terrified of the responsibility of being in charge of having to take care of someone else that isn't them. Like if you screw up and you're the only person that's affected, okay, that sucks. But if you screw up and suddenly you have a team of people, let alone a world that is counting on you, that is terrifying. Um, but being having characters that can overcome that, I think gives comfort and not, and hope for people who are scared of that responsibility. Like I am, <laughs> um, and so I do try to make sure that while these reluctant heroes are, you know, terrified of our proverbial adulthood, um, they are able to do it, even if that does mean they have a lot of help, because realistically, very few people can do everything on their own. Um, and, you know, I use that a lot for heroes in fantastic situations. Like, I would love to be able to know how to dual wield 
daggers or to fire a bow and arrow with perfect accuracy, but I can't. So giving my characters at least that kind of badass quality to it while dealing with the uh, imposter syndrome, if you will, of feeling like someone is going to point to them and be like, you're a fraud, feels really realistic almost in any situation, regardless of if it's, you know, you've got a feral elf chasing you through a forest, or if you're trying to sit through a, a, your first day at a new job. Totally. Okay, so I want to go into pet peeves. This is my favorite <laughs> part. <laughs> and you've mentioned a couple of things here that I think are great pet peeve areas. And the first is tropes. So do you have any pet peeve tropes? I hate love triangles. <laughs> <laughs> I really do because it's always, they can be done well, don't get me wrong. I've read a few that are done very well where it's realistic, where it's more of a societal pressure, where it's like, this is the correct person to be with. They've got money, they've got station, they've got power, blah, blah, blah. But they're in love with the pauper and they're in love with them, but it's just not going to work out because Victorian era, whatever the setting happens to be. That makes sense to me. But we, most of the time you get a love triangle that's um, the dangerous boy and then the wonderful prince and this young girl who just wants a venture but can't pick between the two of them so she kind of strings them both along and they're both like yeah we're <laughs> gonna compete for you instead of being like why this bitch can't make up her mind <laughs> <I love it>. <laughs> <laughs> and, but then at the end one of them always gets a door prize it's like the one that she doesn't pick is always like oh but look now i'm suddenly in love with your best friend everyone's happy it's like what <laughs> right right where did this come from um i hate that um <sighs> And the other one is like, the other one is you find it a lot with um, vampire books where you have this thousand, four hundred year old vampire meets a young girl that's, I forget the age of the, uh, uh, how old she was in Twilight, but still high school or even just 30 years old. Maybe they have a career. Maybe they have a master's degree, like in Discovery of Witches. Still, this dude is 400 years old. And suddenly he's like, oh, this child, a literal child to someone who is that old is like, this is the person that I am fascinated with. How, how can you be fascinated with them when you have seen war and the world changing and you have like 9 million degrees because what else are you gonna do with an immortality life except live in a library and read everything? It's like, <laughs> how, right. how is this, how is this person, how do you have a meaningful conversation with them? Yeah, like, you don't. <laughs> it's like, oh, hey, remember that time? Oh, wait, this was 400 years before your birth. Never mind. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That one is perhaps my least favorite. In fact, I feel like I can't remember what I was looking at. My son was looking at it too. And it was, it was a, a oh, it was a Vampire Diaries, which I've never seen. Or okay. read. It's a book too, isn't it? Yes. I haven't read or seen it either, but I know yeah. what you're talking about. But it popped up as an ad and we were looking at that and he's like, that sounds like Twilight. And I said, yes. And he said, what? Why? <laughs> <laughs> Why would the vampires even care? It's an excellent question. I don't know. I don't think that they would. <laughs> I know. You know? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, I get it with vampires or werewolves or these immortal beings. It's this idea of the, the 
super alpha animalistic i don't have a choice you are my true love because then it's simple and it's comforting and it's you don't have to work at it you don't have to work at the true love because this is it right and it's like that's a nice thought it really is because i'm married and there are still days where i'm just like oh my god he could leave me because he has free will yeah um, and in books you can escape that being being like oh they're going to be together forever and they're going to be happy and that's comforting and i love that but i don't by the whole, this 18-year-old girl is exactly the most wonderful thing that I, I need. I must have it. It's a little bit, I mean, it's not a little bit, it's very predatory. Yes. Um, <laughs> and not in the good way. Is there a good way? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have a friend who, is, as far as the the romantic triangle thing hates them with a passion, just like it sounds like you do. Her <laughs> argument is that none, the, the majority of those are not even true romantic triangles. And she likes to point out um, the Twelfth Night, the Shakespeare. Oh, yeah, I, I did that play in high school. You know, where, where that's a true romantic triangle because yeah. each person is in love with somebody else, not two people competing for the love of, of a third person. Exactly. Which is an interesting way to do it and definitely think a way that should be done more. It does get complicated. And I think a lot of people shy away from that complication because it's this idea, oh, you have too many characters. Who's going to keep track of this person who likes that person who likes this person, but who likes that person? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Throw in some, some cross-dressing and, and uh, identity confusion. <laughs> oh, man, that's a party. <laughs> that's such a good play. I love that one. It's a great play. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of, have you ever um, read or watched uh, The Horseman on the Roof? No. The French story and the movies and subtitles, Keisha um, made me watch it. Well, she didn't make me. I, <laughs> I agreed wholeheartedly. And it's got Olivier Martin in it, okay. who's beautiful. And um, I forget the, the female actor in it, who's absolutely gorgeous as well. That has a love triangle, kind of, in that she slowly falls in love with um, the man that she needs, Olivier Martin, but she's already married. Ah. And very much loves her husband. And in that one, it's one where you're rooting for her to leave him, but she doesn't actually leave him in the movie, which is interesting. Hmm. Um, and I think an interesting flip on that, that she stays in the relationship she was in to begin with. Interesting. But it's a really, really beautiful, good movie. I'll have to and, look it And up. I haven't read the book. Keisha read it. She's read everything. It's really <laughs> good. I highly recommend it. All right. I'm making a note. And then, okay, so next pet peeve would be fantasy names. Oh, Lord. <laughs> it's, I don't know when it happened or where it happened or why, but there's this idea that for a fantasy book to feel like a fantasy, you can't pronounce the name. <laughs> it, 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 like, I get it. No one's going to name the hero of their medieval town Jack. Like, that's going to look weird. But... At the same time, if I look at a name that has eight syllables, uh, an X and a Y that are silent and a Q for some reason, I don't know what to do with this. And it honestly, each time I see it in a book that I stop and I look at the name, I'm like, how, how do I say this? And it breaks the flow of the story. I'm still gonna read it, especially if it's a really good book, but it just, it bring, brings me out of the book and the story just that much that it's like, 
I don't know, maybe it's just this need I have to be able to figure out how to say a person's name, but it just, it, why? I don't understand. Like, why does it have to be so unpronounceable? Like, I think elves do it a lot too. And I don't know if it's because of um, Lord of the Rings or something, but you look at these, and I did a lot of research on elf names because there are normal elves later on in my series and they would have elfy sounding names. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, there's odd accents on letters that I didn't know could have an accent on them. Wow, how do, I don't think a human tongue can actually form this word. Um, and I'm all for fantasy books that put the, um, like the glossary of terms and how to say the names in the book, but then put them at the front, not the back, because by the end of the story, I've already decided that I'm pronouncing the name this way. Right. <laughs> and if you tell me at the end of the book, I've been pronouncing it wrong this whole time. Oh, no, <laughs> that makes me so mad. Irrationally so, but it does. Um, and there's this fine line almost between making a world and a fantasy world where the characters have names that fit in with the world and then going overboard and making it sound like they could be an alien race because there's just so many letters involved. Right. Uh, and for me, the way I go about naming my worlds and my characters is I figure out what the region is that I'm kind of basing it off of. So for Monster Selkirk, it's very Scottish, very old European. So I go on this website called BehindTheName.com. I love this website. And they have regional names of all over the world and every culture you can think of and some that, and including mythology. Um, and it also lists out modern versus old fashioned names that maybe have gone out of style or they have changed the spelling to fit with a more modern time. Um, so I can go through those lists and see, okay, my world is in based loosely off Scotland. What are some of those names? Okay, so uh, Randall is a common-ish name, but Back in the day, it was spelled almost like Hragnall with an H. I'm sorry, it sounded terrible. <laughs> I can't do accents. I apologize a million times. But, but when you look at it, you can still kind of figure out what that name is, both from where it turned into, a, into today's modern spelling versus its original spelling. So it fits with that fantasy vibe because it's a little bit strange. Um, but also the region because it's not going to sound like it could be, um, you know, an American name or something like that. But it is also not going to trip you up where for five minutes you're just staring at this name, trying to sound it out. And your significant other may walk in the room being like, what? What's happening? <laughs> right. I love it. So that I don't... And I know a lot of fantasy authors that don't do this, um, which is fantastic. And I wish more of the uh, bigger names would kind of relax just a little bit on their naming. Um, 
but I don't know. It's it. I get it. Don't save your Megans and your Rebecca's for your contemporary, but don't put, I'm not even going to attempt to say some of these names because it's just going to sound like I'm coughing into the microphone, <laughs> but you know, you know, yes. <laughs> very much so. Yeah. <clears throat> I love it. Okay, so you recommended, because we ask this of our authors, you recommended um, as one of your favorite books, Angel Fall yes. by Susan E. And I got to read it, which was so much fun. So um, tell me about how you discovered Angel Fall. And we're going to put, uh, so hopefully re uh, listeners have gotten a chance to read it ahead of time. So we're going to like feature this as our oh, book of the month for October. Um, <laughs> when you're when you're oh my gosh my brain when your uh, episode posts yes uh listeners we are in august you will be listening to this in october there i am pulling the time machine back again <laughs> but tell me a little bit how you discovered angel fall um and what what some of your favorites favorite things about it are yeah definitely so I had a Kindle Unlimited subscription that my husband got me for either a birthday or Christmas. I can't remember. I was living in New Orleans at the time, and I'm in Los Angeles now, so it's, there's been a lot happening <laughs> between those two times. Um, but I had the Kindle Unlimited subscription, and I found Angel Fall just by kind of browsing through the paranormal fantasy genre that they have. And I'm not a big apocalyptic person. There's just, it feels like one of the genres that has fallen into a bad trope a lot where it's, oh, the world's ended. We don't know how. We're guessing nuclear warfare. It's never really clear in these apocalyptic books. I don't know why. Um, and now it's, we're gonna save it somehow. Apocalyptic books and dystopian have a, a very fine line in between them. But I picked up Angel Fall because I'm a big Supernatural, the TV show fan. And oh, yes. it's so good. And so sad that it's ending. But at the same time, it feels right. Because um, I mean, how often can you, can you top the apocalypse? Right. <laughs> but um, so I saw it and I was like, oh, Angel's cool. I wonder if any of them are like Castiel. Um, and I started reading it and immediately, who would think that the apocalypse and the bad guys in it would be the angels? Like yeah, that absolutely. was just a wonderful immediate little trope flip that I enjoyed. I mean, you think about it, especially with, you know, Good Omens being so popular now because of the Amazon Prime um, show. And I've read Good Omens, it's fabulous as well. Yeah. But, you always kind of forget that the apocalypse isn't just hell coming to earth to, you know, destroy everything. It's the battle between angels and demons. Yeah. And even if the angels win, their goal is not humanity. They're not trying to save humanity from demons or the devil. They're waging their ultimate battle against good and evil. And we just happen to be in the crosshair. Um, and I loved that she went in that direction. And the fact that um, Penryn, the main character, is a 17-year-old girl, and she is not looking to fix anything. She is just looking to survive. She just wants to take care of her sister, who is in a wheelchair, which I love, too, because you don't see a lot of disabled characters, even if, like, 
granted she's not the main character but you still don't see a lot of them in in young adult fantasy yeah um, absolutely so i was really excited by that and the fact that she's also taking care of her uh her mom who is who was seeing demons well before the end of the world happened um and how that relationship made her very capable to believably take care of herself because her mom was prepping her to take to defend herself if she ever attacked her own daughter and i thought that one sucks but two that makes sense of why all of a sudden penrin is this badass who can like fight and defend herself and can also take care of her wheel wheelchair bound sister um and so i love that all of her goals are personal she's really just wants to take care of her family and make sure they're fed and safe and they're inside by the time by nightfall and then once that gets upended and her sister is kidnapped by angels weird um that her goal is still just personal and that it evolves over time into becoming something bigger it but it doesn't start with this huge i'm going to save the world goal it's yeah start, it starts at something more relatable and evolves over time and i love those kind of stories because you think about with the marvel and all of their movies out it always starts with like we have to save the world it's like great we saved it now what well we have to save the galaxy okay awesome <laughs> now what right um, so yeah. i really love that um and the fact that her and rafi who is the angel that she reluctantly works with to get her sister back are not like they have this really wonderful enemies to to friends because i won't say lovers because it doesn't quite go that far um vibe going on and i don't and i know that's getting more popular now the enemies to lovers trope but at the time that was one of my first introductions to it and i really really loved the tension that they had in his pull of knowing that getting involved with a human is bad is really bad there are huge consequences that i won't say because of spoilers um and he fights against that but still wanting to be helpful and help her because he sees that his side maybe has lost its way along the way of the apocalypse um and it just felt so multi-layered with their good guys within the bad guys and then bad guys that are humans and no one's it's a very dark fantasy and i've always kind of gravitated towards more of that darkness than um chosen one type fantasies yeah where, oh there's an orphan and suddenly they're the savior of the world and they just insta know how to be awesome <laughs> right i love it we might have to have you back on to talk uh with our author friend rachel about fantasy tropes because she has some similar comments and i think you two would hit it off and oh, have a wonderful it. discussion so I we'll love definitely that. have to have you back for that that would be great that'd be awesome um oh gosh i just so i had never heard of it uh, and i don't think that uh keisha had either and i was blown away by it i really loved it i loved i thought she did an amazing job with her characterization and her characters were so deep and complex um and really a great job writing the um the darker parts you know mm -hmm. she handled them really really well 
um, and they were very vivid and um, the emotional tension between uh, Raffi and Penryn was amazing as well. And, and Raffi's sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And I thought that was a perfect way to kind of balance out the oppressive darkness that, that could have been present for such dark matter in the book. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I thought it was absolutely fabulous. Who was your favorite character? I really loved Penryn. I thought she was great. And Rafi's humor. Oh my God, you're so right. Like his, the dry delivery he does sometimes. Which yes. Is like, oh, Rafi. <laughs> um, do, you, do you have a favorite moment? This is one of those books. I'm not a big rereader. Like if I have my, my TBR is so huge and I get so many book requests from other indie authors that I feel guilty going back and rereading old books because there are so many new things to discover. But this is one of those series that after reading it on Kindle Unlimited, I bought the whole thing in paperback. And I love it. So I can go back and reread um, starting with the paperback because I feel, again, weird that I didn't read the paperback even though I've read the book. Um, so it's been a little while since I've read it but one of the, my favorite moments, and uh, I don't know how much I could talk about it just because of the spoilers, but is the, the headquarters that they go to in San Francisco. Yes. Uh, the angel head headquarters and just seeing the different kinds of angels that they had in there and how they functioned and that, oh, how do I say this without spoilers? Um, where, where Rafi goes to try and get his wings repaired, that area. Yes. Oh my gosh. I, I loved her world, world building and how layered it felt. And yes. I almost wanted more of it. Like I wanted a bit more of the world. I found myself wanting that, like, that's how amazing it was. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's set in San Francisco. So, you know, for people who live in California, it, she may have gone a little light on the world building because it's like, oh, it's San Francisco. What do I really need to say about it? Yeah. Um, but I agree. Like, I wanted more of the angel side of how they yes. changed the, the area, how they made these headquarters, how they made that area where that Rafi goes down into to try and get his wings fixed, where Penryn goes to try and find her sister, like that whole den of nightmares. Um, like I wanted to see more of what the angels were doing and you just get that glimpse and I know that it's going to be big in the next book and uh, what comes of it and what happens with and what Penryn needs to do for her sister afterwards but I did want to see a lot more of what what the angels were doing when they were yeah. hanging out on, on earth um, and I love and it's one of these things that I also put a lot in my books. And I was doing it before I read Angel Fall, but it makes me feel better after reading it. Uh, I love this idea of an absentee God, where you have people who know it's there, but he's not talking anymore. And he's yeah. not telling people what to do. So you're just standing around waiting and hoping that he's going to say something. And all of the angels are kind of in that same boat. And I love that because it's, you know, it really tests faith. And if you don't have faith, how destructive that can turn um, with thinking, well, God would say something if he didn't want us to do this. Right. Um, and it's like, whoa, calm down there, guys. But um, 
it was, I really like this sort of like knowing that yes, there is a higher power, but he's, but where is he or she? Like what, what happened? Where did they go? Yeah. And I think that's a very relatable feeling in this, this modern age is that feeling of where, where is that? Exactly. Um, I love it. I put it, when it gets further in my series, I dive real hard into that with one of the main uh, baddies that my, my main girl Talis has to deal with is someone who is driven mad by this need to talk to God. Um, because the elves can talk to their deities. They're very much a, it feels like the Tolkien elf where the trees are really spiritual beings and they can kind of converse with them and feel like they're getting direction. Um, even though elves have complete free will. So it's not as um, involved as popular Christian mythos might be for how they view God, but the humans don't have that. And so this one character is just driven mad by this need to know that his prayers are being heard, that they're being answered, that there's a reason, there's a purpose. And he goes about trying to enact the prophecy that Talus was, Talus was not created to save the world. She was created to end it, um, which I think is fun. I love that. <laughs> because it's sort of, oh, you're going to save us. It's like, well, how about I was here to end you and I'm going to, I'll do y'all a solid and not do that. Um, <laughs> that is absolutely fabulous. <laughs> but this guy, her main foe towards the end of the series is like, no, 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 no. You, you, you messed up. This is actually a good thing because then we'll be able to talk to him. We'll be able to, to see his will. Um, and so I really love that kind of what happens when that fanaticism takes over. Cause I do have another character, Tomas, who's, you know, Talis's, um, companion throughout the entire series, who's very faith-based. He grew up in a monastery and, and he's that flip side of that fanatical coin where, you know, he believes, but he doesn't have the, um, the arrogance as the main villain to think that he has a right to know or that he's capable of knowing what a divine plan is and that he is, you know, even capable of maybe seeing the signs of prayers being answered without that overhanded touch that the main bad guy is looking for so it was it was fun to play off of and angel fall did, did that originally so well and it's always been something that i've liked so i think that's also part of the reason why i love the series so much i love that yeah that's a great idea so uh tell us a little bit more about uh the selkirk series and maybe specifically the monster of selkirk yeah definitely so the monster of selkirk starts off with the elves are the elves sorry are already feral they have been feral for 300 years and in order to survive the humans have enacted this thing called the clearing where every four years they go and they basically push the elves away from their borders so they're going through destroying their camps killing any of the elves because elves are they're, they're liable to eat your children. They're not good people. Um, they look monstrous. They have glowing yellow eyes. They have talon-like claws. 
Um, and no one knows why they went mad. They've just, 300 years have been this way and because humans are so short-lived, they've kind of forgotten about it. And one day after a clearing, a baby is found in the wreckage and a woman who can't have a child finds her and loves her and takes care of her. And this girl grows up believing that these are her parents until as it always happens, everything changes. And I won't say what, because it's a, it's a big moment in the book. But all of a sudden, the elves start coming out of the towns, hissing her name. And these villagers who thought they knew what a monster was, because monsters look like the elves, they come and steal your children and burn your houses and keep you from traveling the forest because they're lurking everywhere. Suddenly, they don't know what the monster is anymore, because the elves are looking for talents. And they are pouring into their cities, hissing her name. And she has to flee and she doesn't know why. She doesn't know why these elves want her. She doesn't know what to do about it. But her own father is saying, you are a monster. And so she has to run away and figure out what's going on selfishly to clear her own name. It's very much not going in there with the idea of like, I want to fix these elves. I want to stop them from hurting people. No, she just wants people to stop thinking that she's involved. Um, and over the course of the books, she starts getting answers as to why the elves want her, as to you know, who she is, what she, and then in that vein, what she wants. You know, this idea of, oh, you were made to do a thing. You are prophesized for this purpose. And what if she doesn't want to do that? What if the chosen one is like, I don't choose this. And so it's very much an exploration of her figuring out what she wants, how she wants to do it and getting help to do it because she knows she can't do it alone. So it's very much a companion um, story, a journey with her physically traveling to get these answers, but also a journey of self-realization, which I think works really well for young adults because they're still trying to figure out what they like, what they want, where, what space they occupy in the world. And Talos is very much in that camp. She knows that these people, her friends, her loved ones, the elves, all have a very specific idea of what she is meant to do, who she is meant to be. And she doesn't want that. She wants to live a life of her choosing. And a lot of the time she just wants to live kind of in the shadows. She doesn't want people to notice her. But sometimes that's not a choice that we can make. And so she makes these hard decisions. There's a lot of heartbreak. Not all my characters make it to the end. And, but there's also a romance, no love triangles. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, but it does go over six books because um, I am not a fan of series that just never seem to end. Um, this has a goal that is set up in the beginning that does come to a very concrete conclusion at the end of who is the monster Selkirk. And it plays off that idea of in old mythology, monsters weren't necessarily inherently bad. They were a gray area, either a beacon of change to come or a warning of things that could get worse. 
And so that's kind of the monster that I play off of for Talis specifically. She is a warning, she is a beacon of things could get nasty. And depending on how you treat the situation, it may get a lot worse for you before it gets better. It sounds absolutely fabulous. I cannot wait to read it. Would you mind reading a tiny excerpt for us? Yes, definitely. And I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do voices because <laughs> that's okay. I don't do voices. Either. <laughs> um, but just for a little scene setting, this is Talis and her cousin Donovan, who um, have just fled after the the inciting incident um, of the elves coming in and hissing her name. And there's a brief pause of in between the, the fighting where Talis is very you know, trying to come to terms with everything that's going on. So that's a little bit of, of the scene setting for this little excerpt that happens in book one. <clears throat> Excuse me. Talis should have been more attentive to watch for birds or deer, but she could not help but brood and be distracted by her own thoughts and worries. Thankfully, Donovan could not sleep either. Joining his cousin, he gently bumped her shoulder as a way of greeting. Talis glanced at him. It's not fair, cousin. Donovan nodded. No, it's not. I thought that coming here, I thought I'd finally have answers and figure out who I was, but now I don't think I want to know. I don't think I'm going to like what we find. I just want to go home and pretend like none of this happened. I'd even marry Honrek if it meant we could all just go back to the way it was. Oh, come now. You'd be bored stiff if you married Honrek and stayed in King Cardine. Maybe, but I didn't want this. I know, Tally, but the world is not obligated to care about what you or I want. I'm sorry it happened to you, but, well, if it helps, I think they'll be able to handle it, whatever it is. But I don't want to handle it. I just want to be normal. I, but being normal is so dull. So what? I'd rather be boring than hated and feared and treated as an outcast. But this way, you'll get to be a hero, Talis. People will kill, people would kill for the opportunity to save their country. I don't want to be their hero. I don't want to be anyone's hero. I just wanted the chance to be like everyone else. I wanted someone to protect me just this once. I don't need someone to shelter me, but it would be nice to be protected all the same. Don't I deserve it? Strong or not, I want someone to hold me and tell me it will be all right. Donovan draped his arm around his cousin's shoulder and gave her a gentle hug. I know, Tally. And maybe one day you'll find someone who will be able to hold you and make you feel safe and secure no matter what. But for now, we have to keep going. We have to keep fighting. Talis gritted her teeth. Aye, you're right. Thank you, Donovan. What would I do without you? Donovan chuckled. Curl in a ball and try and hide, most likely. Talis rolled her eyes. Oh, right. I forgot all about the running and hiding. Is that still an option? They laughed together and passed the rest of the night in silence. Yay, that was fabulous. I love the dialogue there. And dialogue can be so hard to nail. That felt spot on. Oh, thank you. It was, I always get a little self-conscious about writing guys because it's like, uh, do they sound like dudes? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. And maybe next time, uh, if you guys want me back, I, we could talk to Keisha. Yes, we'll have to get Keisha back on and my friend Rachel and talk some tropes here. That would be a blast. That'd be awesome. There's a wonderful channel, by the way, where I, I watch a ton for 
trope talk. It's specifically about tropes. It's from the overly sarcastic productions. And she does this whole wonderful YouTube channel all about tropes. There's like 33 videos of it. And they talk about uh, you know, the tropes surrounding strong female characters, evil empires, all of that kind of stuff. It's awesome. Oh, I love it. That sounds great. I'll have to check that out. All right. Thank you listeners for listening. That's it for now. Happy reading and happy writing, everybody. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to randomly throw that into every episode now. It'll be like in a random part. Uh, Scare the Jesus out of our listeners whenever uh, they get it. That brings us to the end of yet another Read, Write, Repeat episode. We have to give a big shout out to our producer, Vaguely Human Productions, for making us sound so great, and a huge thanks to Mike Frederick for our intro music. You can find links to all of these lovely people in our show notes. Listeners, thanks so much for giving us your time. We'd love to hear from you, and doing so enters you in our giveaway. We put together a quarterly goodie box to show our listeners how much we appreciate them, interact with us, and be entered to win the goodie box. To enter, simply follow us and tag us in a bookish photo or comment on Instagram, at read, write, repeat, underscore podcast on Twitter at the RWR podcast or Facebook at read, write, repeat pod, or leave us a comment on our show notes or one of our posts on any of our social media platforms. A winner will be drawn at random at the beginning of November, February, May, and August. If you love us, Please be sure to rate us and leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your preferred listening platform so that others can find us. If anything sparked an idea for you or you have thoughts about what we should discuss next, let us know. You can find ways to connect with us on our website, readwriterepeatpod.com. Thanks for listening, you guys. Have a wonderful day.